over Christmas, I hope you got to sing that old carol, What Child Is This? Uh, I hope as you sang that question captured your heart and filled you with wonder and you said to yourself, how is this even possible? How could a God this vast, this good become a man? And not just a man, but a baby, vulnerable and weak and needy. The same script that you and I all followed with our earthly life. Our first experiences on earth stamped our souls with a sense of vulnerability and of insecurity. Well, he went that same path. He, this great, fast God became a man and his first experiences on the earth were of need. How is that even possible? for God to become a man. What child is this? As good as that question is, uh, it, it is not John's preferred approach. A few years ago when we talked through the book of John, I said to you, if you're on, only going to read one letter about Holly, read mine because I know Holly best. I love Holly best. If you're going to only read one letter about Jesus, read John's because John was his friend. John knew him and loved him. As scholars have noted over 2,000 years, uh, John doesn't even tell the nativity stories. He, he doesn't tell those stories. He feels like they are less important than others. Now, Luke does and Matthew does. But John, for his part, is determined to press us further today and ask us a deeper question. What man is this? What man did this baby become? Have you looked long at Jesus recently? The Bible calls that to meditate. To think about it, to roll it over in your mind, to write it down, to consider it. Have you paid attention to Jesus until your soul and your eyes opened up in wonder the spectacular virtue of this man? The remarkable power, the unspeakable wisdom that came flowing out of this 32-year-old's mouth. Have you considered Christ until you see in, that he is both sides of the Christmas equation? He is, as the prophets said, God with us. If you want to see how it is that God comes to the earth, you look at Jesus. But he is also us with God. He, he is what it looks like when a person has finally been reconciled to God and lives in union with the Father. So he truly is God-man. He truly is the picture of God, true picture of God. He's the true picture of man, of what we were, what we were intended to be in Genesis and now can be restored in him. Uh, Jesus is who God is. He is who we should be. He is what God is planning to make us as he redeems us. Now, in Sunday school, I hope you read the first part of this remarkable fifth chapter of John. Uh, it's a great story. Do you want to get well? But for the next few minutes, I'd like to focus on the second half of it. And so I'm going to invite you to stand, and we're going to read together just a portion of God's Word. Now, don't you be Christmas tired on me this morning. Now, you, all, you read this with a big voice all together. Here we go. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, 
My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner, so that all will honor the son even as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Would you be seated and would you open a Bible to John chapter 5, please? What man is this? Who are we dealing with this morning as he has promised to come into this meeting in the person of the Holy Spirit? You will not see him apart from a new miracle, but he has come this morning to be honored by the people who love him. What kind of what man is he? Well, he's a humble man, especially toward God. He is soft of will. He is not proud. He is not stubborn. He does not have his own agenda. He says, the son can do nothing of himself. Look this way. I don't do anything. I only have one rule for life, and I do what I see my father doing. We dance together. We live together. We work together. I'm discovering something in retirement. I'm not officially there, but I'm already feeling it. For years, when I did not put God first in my life, I would always say it was because I was so busy. That's what I would say. But of course, that's not true, because now with so much less to do, the struggle is the same. So surprise, surprise. The problem is not my schedule. It never was. It's my heart. It's the big me in the center of my soul. That self-centeredness that the Bible calls pride. And I just am here to say this morning, that's not how Jesus was. Do you see your own illness as you look at him? Do you see how stubborn you are with God? How demanding you are of your own way and your career and your safety and your needs and your hopes and your dreams? Do you compare yourself rightly and see he is well and I am sick. Bruce Larson used to tell a story of a mental hospital. And over the mantle in the great room was this sign. And it said, do you want to be right or do you want to be well? Do you want to keep this strategy of saying you were right against your ex or you were right against your parents or you were right against the world or right against God? Do you want to keep that strategy going or would you like to get well? For most of us, I'm afraid it's the first. Is it hard for you to apologize, anyone in here? It is for me. Sometimes are you willing to even hurt your family or your own health or even the heart of God just so that you can be right? Help me here. I'm feeling a little alone. Do you know what I'm talking about? Something is wrong, everybody, with the human heart. Something is dramatically wrong. Do you see, finally, by his grace, that it's wrong for you to continue to live that way 
especially when you are presented with the health, the healthy one, Jesus, the one who lived in real fellowship with his father, never had God over here and me over here, me begging God to help me with my independent life. That's not how he saw life. He, we're together. I just have one privilege, and that is to walk with the Father. Um, second, what kind of what man is this that you're dealing with this morning? Well, he was one with God. One in step. The cake really hit the floor with this one when he said in verse 17, My father is working, and I'm working. The Jews were furious. See, part of their theological foundation for the Sabbath rule was way back in Genesis when God rested on the seventh day. It was a rest of inactivity. He worked six days, and then on the seventh day, he didn't work. And that's the reason they practiced Sabbath that way. Jesus said, well, no, not really. It wasn't so much a rest of inactivity as it was of satisfaction or of peace. He was pleased with what he, he was glad for what he had created. It was a rest of satisfaction. You see, as Jesus says, God never really stops, and you don't want him to. McLaren says the divine energy constantly is streaming out from heaven toward the world. And like a bush that is burns but is never consumed, it is in his providence, it is in his redemption, it is his care that the human race finds hope. God never rests. He's at work this morning. Now, just as an aside, maybe you will enjoy doing this. Our God is not nervous this morning. He's not anxious. He is not feeling like this whole world is on a course where it's never going to make sense anymore. He knows that the plan that he's put in place is going to work, and it's going to redeem out of Adam's race some, a few, of people that belong to him exclusively. He knows it's going to work. And he is actively in pursuit of people for that plan he is not panicked about the way the world it is shooting toward a promised end. But the larger issue for the Jews was the way Jesus put his own work side by side with the Father's. Uh, he was making himself equal with God in an essential way. I'm, I'm essentially of essence, the same essence as God. And that's not something any of us could ever do. But we can be and we should be one with God, and the God-man is the proof, in function, in priority, in activity. Uh, Paul will later say that the church, the true church, is the body, and he's the head, and we don't fight against him. What he wants to do in the world, we do. We do quickly, we do joyfully, we do obediently. He, we don't fight against our head. We are one with him in his activities and goals. No wonder so many of us are still feel so distant from God, so ashamed and so afraid, because we are so inactive. Such couch potatoes. The culture has taught us to make the gospel only in the mind and not in the feet. Only in what you think and not what you do. And James will say, Show me a faith that doesn't have works. It is, it's dead from the start. The whole idea here is you want to be close to God, get up. Get up. Get up. 
There are things to do in this world. There are people who are still broken. There are, God is at work. Now get up and be part of that with him. And your sense of being one with him will be fulfilled. Why should you do it? Because that's how the God-man lived. He was part of God's work start to finish day by day, every day of his life. What man is this? He's humble. He's one with God. He's the shepherd of other men. The sick man in this passage does not seek the Lord ever. It's just the opposite. He's oblivious to the Lord's presence. There isn't anything in this story that says he was seeking God or wanting help or desiring the attention of Jesus. No. Jesus came to him. Jesus noticed him. Jesus spoke to him. Jesus called him out later about sin. The whole story is about this great God who even this morning is looking over the whole earth seeking somebody whose heart is right with him. He is going to come to you and he's going to speak to you and call you forward again and again. He's going to be your friend. Jesus even knows the psychological damage of chronic illness. How hard that is and how it tends to make us give up on the dream of ever being well. Uh, as you consider Christmas this morning, I wonder if you see the great shepherd who left the 90 and 9 came looking for you. Anybody? Do you have a sense of how much you owe to Jesus that he chased you down until he brought you to believe in him? Now will you take that image as your own? Will you say, if he was the shepherd of me, then I will be the shepherd of others? No born-again Christian gets to say, am I my brother's keeper? Because the answer is, yes, you are. Just because the shepherd came to look for you, he's the true man. He's what humanity really looks like. Years ago, my mind was captured with the words of Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. His worldview is not shaped by the world. His delight is in the law of the Lord. In that law, he meditates day and night. He's driven by this question. What does God deserve? What does God require? What does God want from me? He's got a brand new central question operating in his life. And what is the result? He'll be a tree firmly planted. God will begin to bless him because that's what God intended for all mankind to be. Only recently did I realize that this psalm was describing Jesus and every one of his followers. It was describing Jesus and then those of us who have learned a new life from him. We have learned to live like him. He used to say, come, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Don't just learn about me, learn from me. I will show you how to live this brand new life and you will find rest for yourselves. So this morning I speak to people who are either beginning or right on the beginning of the beginning of the call of the Holy Spirit. You come be humble. Set down your own ambitions. Take up the ambitions of Christ. He'll be cooperative and active and obedient and resilient and strong, strong in the Lord to do what he is asking you to do. 
who be shepherds of others who will never rest so long as there are sick people in this city and people who are lost. We will be in this work together. The result, the blessing of God will pour into the world onto his people, onto his folks, and the world will see it. This morning, we're going to sing the gospel in an old Christmas carol, and I hope you will hear it. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend on us, we pray. The words of Phillips Brooks, cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. Until something new and powerful is born in your heart, you will never be able to do this. You cannot make the flesh be humble. You cannot make the flesh care about others. You cannot make the flesh be obedient to God. It just never will do it. Until something new is born in you, powerful and real, then you can never be what God intended people to be. And once he is born in you, then a new question comes. A lot of people want something from Jesus. Here's your new question. Do you want to be like Jesus? Do you want to be like him? Now, so that his life is born and lives in you for the world to see until he comes again. We're going to sing that song in a minute. Let's pray before we do. Forgive, Lord, if we have had wrong goals, if we have perceived of you too small and thought that you and your greatness would just come help us be who we wanted to be. Forgive if we ignored the parts of Scripture that challenged us to die to self, that old self-constructed being, and live to something new, a new purpose that was less in the eyes of the world and more in the eyes of heaven. Come near, Lord, in celebration of yourself, call again to people to be saved and to be sanctified in your spirit.